Welcome to Wadcast. I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town. Steve Pemberton's book, A Chance in the World, is heartbreaking yet uplifting, tragic yet triumphant, discouraging yet inspiring. The subtitle tells it all, An Orphan Boy, A Mysterious Past, and How He Found a Place Called Home. He was born Steve Klackowitz in New Bedford, Massachusetts. At age five, he was placed in a foster home that can only be described as evil. Through the kindness of one woman, he discovered his love for reading, and he would hole up in his foster family's dark and damp basement to lose himself in other worlds and dream about what his life could be like. He managed to escape that foster hell and graduated from Boston College, but that bright future was haunted by his past, and he set out to find his birth family. What he found on that journey answered many questions about his origins, but also caused him to examine what family really means. On any given day, there are nearly 450,000 children in the U.S. in foster care, and each year, nearly 25,000 kids will age out of foster care and group homes. Steve hopes his book and a foundation that he has established can work towards making a difference. I am honored that Steve is spending time with us today. Steve, thank you so much for being here with us today. Glad to be with you. Your book includes such vivid scenes of your childhood. What was it like growing up in foster care, and how were you able to recover those scenes so vividly, going back to when you were only five years old? The level, the level of detail surprises me sometimes, too, how I was able to recall uh, all of those things, but I didn't think about it too long before I realized that the reason uh, that I was able to was because of what was hanging in the balance uh, at that moment. So in a situation where you are constantly under siege and under pressure and you're looking for some semblance of escape, you're trying to find it in interactions that you have with people, adults, caregivers, kind souls, anyone. And so you remember everything about them because you're thinking that they'll be the ones who can help you. Mm-hmm. And though, they, though they, they are not the ones who are able to help you, you still remember them and still remember all the details about them. Was that a painful exercise for you, going back and thinking about all of that? It wasn't, because I was doing so from the place of where I am today, as a husband, as a father, as a businessman, as a philanthropist, and it has brought me so much peace, all of those outcomes, mm-hmm. that it's not, it's not painful. It doesn't mean I don't feel the void. You know, I do. Uh, but it's not such a difficult experience to recollect that I have to walk away from it. Uh, so that's certainly one one way I'd answer it. The other thing that I have come to learn is that it is so important for any of us, actually, not just me, but any of us, to tell our story because somebody out there needs it. They need to hear it. They need to hear that it's possible to overcome a situation that is incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging. And how dare I sit on my own story knowing that it has that ability to positively impact the life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's always that continuing debate about nature versus nurture. 
uh, you know, do the things that we inherit from our parents and our family uh, dictate our path as opposed to the environment in which we're raised. But in in your case, Steve, you drew cards in both from both decks that were very challenging. You came from a challenging birth family, and certainly your environment in foster care was very challenging. Well, you know, these, these age-old debates uh, in, in psychology, it's, as you rightly point out, it's nature versus nurture. In sociology, it's agency versus structure. Mm-hmm. All these dichotomies. But I don't think it's a matter of either or, and not just for me. I think that can work for any of us. There is a certain nature that you come into the world with, you know, personality, makeup. You know, tell anybody who's had more than one child who, who will agree with that by and large. Uh, but I also think that the environment in which, which you raise also has an impact in how you respond to that in particular. I, I, I really do think, though, that it's a matter of both, actually. How do you come into the world and then how do you navigate the world? Mm-hmm. And both of those things can be impacted. I had many discussions with my father's family and came to know a great deal about his personality as an example. And I realized that we have the same nature. We, and I see that in my own children, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the nurturing was different. Mm. Uh, and, and I think there's a third rail, which is the response to those two things. And, and how we all turn out is likely to be found in one of those three areas. Mm-hmm. So your name, you were born, Steve Klackowitz. When you looked in the mirror as a young child, did, did you connect with that name? Did you wonder about your ethnicity? Well, I always knew the name didn't fit mm-hmm. because it was unique. Klackowitz, what is that? What's the nationality, the origins of it? The biggest collision for me was my physical appearance. A young uh, African-American boy, I had a blonde afro, of light complexion, blue eyes, and a Polish last name. And, and so the name in and of itself uh, was not the only reason that I had a disconnect. The disconnect came because of my physical appearance, literally what I looked like. So that, that was a, a major you know, issue for me. And I did wonder about my makeup. I had no memory of parents. Mm-hmm. and no pictures to refer to. So I literally did not know who I looked like until I was in my mid-20s. Mm-hmm. What fueled your survival instincts? I, I, because, you know, I don't. it would have been so difficult for most people not to lose hope when they were facing the abuse that you faced uh, with your foster family, the Robinsons. What, what kept you going? The idea that a different day was awaiting me. Mm-hmm. And that came to me because of how much I love to read. And I made this leap from this thing that I read and the people that I read about and the beautiful lives that they seemed to have. And I just developed this belief that one day I could find that place that I had come from and I would be welcomed back. But after a while, I realized that that was not going to come to pass. And then I made the next pivot which was, well, then maybe I can create it for myself. And that always was 
the driving factor for me. And so it didn't matter what I heard or what the predictions were for me. I was always balancing anything that was said about me against the vision I had of a different life than the one that I was in. And that, so it made me, I'll confess, quite a, quite a force. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so there was a, just probably a natural fearlessness that I, that I came into the world with. But it was met also with the things that I read about, and it gave me a North Star, and it made me even more defiant in the face of all of those headwinds. And I, I would suggest that to anybody who's in a very difficult circumstance. For me, it was, you know, a very challenging foster care uh, home. But for others, it could be a bad relationship. It could be a bad job, a bad marriage. It, you know, it, it, it could be circumstances that we're in that are very difficult. But the, the real question is, well, how much time do we spend lamenting that and how much time do we spend trying to articulate in the fine and then put in the work necessary to get to a different vision? <laughs> well, now you talk about the reading and there was one person who stands out in your story as someone who was instrumental in creating your love for books. Can you tell us a little bit about Mrs. Levin? Yeah, Mrs. Levin... Uh, remains on the Mount Rushmore of my life. Mm. And she was uh, a kind neighbor who one day walking down the street, she saw me reading the same book over and over again. And uh, when she asked me, uh, you know, why that was the case, I, you know, I always had these rules that I, I couldn't share too much about what was happening in the home. But, um, you know, I told her, well, I just go back to the beginning and I hope I see new things because I absolutely can't tell her that, you know, I, I'm not allowed uh, new books mm-hmm. and reading's a great risk to me because of this foster home. And and she doesn't say anything to this, uh, but later on that night she brings by a box of books, which she did many times over the 11 plus years that I was in that home. And those books, be, they did become my North Star and they helped me develop a value system and a certain kind of perseverance. So I've never forgotten her and I never will forget her. Well, many years later, I did get the chance to meet her. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I asked her why she did that and her answer was so instructive for all of us, particularly in these me first and me only times in which we live. And she said that she wasn't doing anything extraordinary. She said that her mother told her that she had a responsibility to get from where she was with whatever she had. Mm-hmm. And that's what she was doing with me. And I loved the fact that one of the uh, series of books that she gave you were the Encyclopedia Brown books, uh, which I'm sure fueled your instincts as a detective, which actually used later on when you were tracking down your birth family. Boy, boy, uh, you couldn't be any more correct about that. <laughs> I love mysteries. I love mysteries. I still do. Yeah. And in my case, it was a real life who done it. I was trying to figure out, you know, who had done it, right? How had I, how had I wound up here? Right. Uh, and, and so my, uh, she did not realize that in, in sharing mysteries with me, she was only furthering uh, my passion uh, and my instinct 
Uh, but that's exactly what it was. So I, I fancied myself a real-life detective, and as it turned out, well, that never was my profession. I did take on a lot of the skills uh, that were required uh, in part the ultimately my own, my own life story. Well, you know, Steve, that's what I found so fascinating about your book. I mean, the beginning of it was all about the foster care, but then once you started searching for answers, it really did become a detective story. And that, for me, was what kept the pages turning to see what you were going to turn up next. It, it, was, uh, it was an adventure. It really was. Did it- yeah, it was quite, you know, it was quite purposeful, uh, in the sense that I was writing it the way that I lived it. Mm-hmm. And the way that I lived it was a mystery to be solved, not a tragedy to be overcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for any of your listeners who are aspiring writers, and write what you know and write what you did. Uh, right. that, that's what I did. Um, and you know, certainly there was something else that was very important to me. And it was that I did not want to be so focused on the tragedy of living in that home uh, that you'd miss the broader point, the broader message mm-hmm. about perseverance and family and faith and fortitude and forgiveness. Right. Now, your birth mother, Marion, had a tragic life, but there were times uh, that you went back and found where she seemed like she might have been pulling her life together, even if that was for a short time. Do you feel that the system in some ways let her down? I mean, if she had uh, been able to get the help for the uh, possible mental illnesses that she was going through, would her story have turned out differently? It would have turned out differently. There was a a tremendous miscalculation in assessing her life. My father's too, for that matter. Mm -hmm. But in her case, it was that... She's, she just doesn't want to be responsible. She doesn't want to be a good mother. And that wasn't true. She wanted to be all of those things. Mm-hmm. But she is facing you know, demons that are very hard for her to navigate. And she doesn't have anybody to really help her. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think because of it, things could have been a different way. Not just for her, but for all of us, right? For all of her children. Uh, and yet, they didn't. And a lot, in large part, it was because there wasn't this willingness to look beyond her first picture. They didn't look to her fuller picture. Right. And there, and there really was a ripple effect because it not only affected her life, it affected her children, certainly her parents. It affected a lot of other people. Oh, it certainly did. And in fact, that ripple began before her with her own mother. Mm. Her own mother likely suffered from some form of mental illness and was estranged from her family. Right. right. You know, so, you know, to your earlier question about nature versus nurture and inheritances, well, inheritances can also be great tragedies, too. Mm-hmm. And that's what she inherited. And nobody signs up for that life. No woman says, take my children from me, please. Right. Um, and let me be estranged from my own family. Uh, no, you know, nobody signs up for that life. People often find, oftentimes find themselves in difficulties. They don't want to be there. Mm-hmm. But they don't have any pathway out and don't believe that there's a pathway out. 
Now, you never met your father, Kenny, but you did find out a great deal about him. But what struck me as I went through was everything that he had been through. His family home was destroyed by a fire. His mother died when he was 15. He had two siblings who died. He went through the riots in New Bedford, failed relationships, being imprisoned, not succeeding as a fighter, the death of his father later. I mean, wow, any one of those things would have been enough to take someone off track. Absolutely. He, he in 26 years, suffered uh, more, more loss. 26 years, so young. Yes, absolutely. And in 26 years, he suffered more loss than most encounter in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ill-equipped to deal with them. I mean, that's just the hard truth of it. You know, but I didn't really understand that until I wrote the book. Because I can't say that I fully understood it. This probably will always be a part of me uh, that uh, in both cases, both in mother and father's case, don't understand. I, I'll probably never fully understand the, how they were unable to see how important a child can be to heal them. Mm. You know, they both of them, you know, missed that. Uh, and in my father's case, I always felt like my unexpected and untimely arrival in his life was God's way of trying to give him an opportunity to recorrect his path and his life by becoming a father. But he rejected that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I better understand the pain that he was in, though. And that, for me, was a pathway to, to forgiveness because I, I realized for whatever I suffered, and it, and it was considerable. Mm-hmm. The pain's not meant to be compared, but he suffered a great deal, yes. too. You know? So... Your half-sister, Joni, who is white, re- refused to accept you because you were biracial. That must, I, and I know reading it in the book, it was, it was a painful time and a painful moment. Um, have you talked to her or seen her since then? No, I've, I have not talked to her since. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, where it was left all those years ago, uh, over 20 years now, mm-hmm. is where it remains today. And... Um, you know, it's, it's uh, certainly, uh, you know, I don't feel sad for me uh, because I always felt that I had done my part, which was to find Marion's siblings, right. uh, Marion's children. Right. And I had done my part, but I did not feel it was also my part to try and bring everybody together as well. And in some cases, especially when... You know, there was a clear, there was something beyond a bias. I mean, it was just abject racism. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't willing to abide that. I wasn't willing to accept that. Um, Because there's a small step from saying it's complicated to justify it. And that I was not willing to do. I just wasn't. And so, you know, where I I left it with her was, well, I'm African-American. I'm not changing that. I don't want to change that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of uh, the, my culture. I'm proud of my people. And 
it's unfortunate that you feel the way that you do, but I, uh, I'm not going to erase that. So you'll embrace me like that is not an option here. It seemed, so, uh, it seemed during that one dinner that you had when she was drinking too much, that there were almost shades of perhaps what, you know, what, what your mother might've gone through. There were. That, yeah, they, certainly, yeah. Yeah. According to my oldest brother, you know, he, I, I was watching his reaction, and it looked like he was seeing a ghost. Yeah. And at one point, I I asked him about his reaction, and he said, well, you've asked me a few times what a mother was like, and he pointed at her. He was talking under his breath, but whispering. He said, but when he pointed at her, and he said, well, now you know, because that's exactly what she was like. Now, was she the only one in the family who couldn't accept, uh, you know, couldn't accept your ethnicity? No, no. There were, you know, varying degrees of a lukewarm embrace on both sides. Mm-hmm. Both, both, uh, but it had less to do with race, actually. Mm-hmm. It had more to do with something that we all do in response to pain and struggle. And it was closing it out. And that that was really what the families were doing. You know, they just, they didn't want any more reminders. Mm-hmm. So when I appeared on the scene, you know, so 20 odd years later, it was quite a shock, as you might imagine. Like, quite a shock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what are you doing here, you know? So going through all of that, Steve, what did family mean to you after all of that? I mean, you found so many members of your birth family. At that point, were you able to sit back and say, this is what family's about? Not entirely. Uh, On the one hand, there was this odd realization that I had been in search of something that had never existed. Mm. All the stories that I read, I read about uh, and, and watched intact families. Um, I'll leave it to Beaver to Good Times and the Brady Bunch and the Jeffersons. And that was my idea of family mm-hmm. and of my own family. But then I came to realize that I was looking for something that had never existed. I had not come from that. But I also realized, though, that in its place, that family to me was always a broader topic, actually. But family, I, I came to understand, is not just who you're born to or what you're born into. It's also who you meet along the way. Mm-hmm. So family for me is just that. It's the people that I've met along the way, the overwhelming majority of whom I have no blood connection to. Mm-hmm. But I think of them the way that you think of any, any of your blood relatives. That's how I think about those that I call family. But now you have managed to create a family with your wife, Tonya, and your children, Quinn, Vaughn, and Kennedy. Um, What also struck me was you, towards the end of the book, you got so into your role as father. uh, And you never really had a role model as a father. How did you discover your parenting skills? I did have a role model, uh, but in answering it that way, I'm expanding the definition of a role model. 
because a role model is also who you don't want to be. And it's also recognition of the things that you didn't have. And, and so my compass always was to be what I never had. So that meant reading bedtime stories and being there for recitals and being there uh, to guide and nurture and, and, and support because all of those things were absent from my life. And I remember how much I longed for them and how important they would have been you know, to me. And uh, so I always thought, no, I, I know how important that is because I never had it. So I'm simply going to be what I never had. And the fact that I didn't have it wasn't my fault, but I did have this responsibility to be something better than that, which I, I never had. And so, um, you know, for me, it, that still continues to be the case. Uh, and, and there's a certain probably vulnerability, you know, honestly, in answering it that way to say, yeah, I miss those things. I, I, I wished that they existed for me, but the beauty of it is that my, my, my children, Glenn, Ron, and Kennedy, they do not have to say that. Mm. You know, they know. They, you know, they know. They can tell you, hey, you know, my, my dad coached my basketball teams, my football teams, and he was out by the cross games, and, uh, you know, he, my, my, my daughter will say, yeah, my, my dad played across with me in the front yard, and he helped me with, with my history homework. You know, those are those are the things that can break cycles. Mm. Now, now they're a little bit older now. Have they read the book? They they have. They they read it when they were younger. Mm-hmm. They're often with me when uh, doing interviews. They're they're in the movie uh, as well, so they're very familiar. They're very familiar with the story. Mm-hmm. So. What reaction have you received from other readers who have uh, um, read your book? Uh, and I'm particularly interested in those who, I know you've spoken to some groups that are involved in foster care. I'm just wondering what the reaction has been. I've, I've learned quite a few things from the, the public reception to the book. And it's, uh, if I crystallize in a phrase, it's that while none of us have the exact same story, we do have mutual chapters. That's what I've come to learn. And that's been the reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was sitting down to write it, I had no idea that I was writing chapters of other people's lives. And then in the course of writing it, I was going to help them heal from their, their losses. And that's been the single biggest reaction. And there's you know, a certain universality to all of that, you know, that we all breathe this air, that you know, we all uh, want safety and security and comfort. And some of us are born into that and some of us are not. But whether you are or you are not, at some point we, we do encounter adversity. Things don't break the way that we want them to. Uh, it's just part of being human. Mm. And, and yet, um, we're ultimately measured by the way in which we respond in those particular moments. And so I've seen that too in those who have responded in the greatest of challenges, you know, as well. And the other thing that 
than a, a reaction, uh, which I, I appreciated. That I was I was very purposeful in talking about the triumph and the importance of being of service. Uh, those who touched my life, particularly uh, later on in my teenage years, were all driven by that same mantra. And I think about our society today, uh, this this kind of meat burst tenor that echoes from our politics to our pulpits uh, to our interactions. And yet generations past, they always believed in a greater will, you know, collective consciousness and the idea that we could be a better community, you know, a better nation, better citizen in that nation if we thought more collectively. And so I, I that, that instinct that I grew up with has been affirmed by the reaction to the book as well. Do you think the foster system has improved at all since uh, you were in it? You know, it's less of a question as to whether or not it's improved. In some areas, it absolutely has. Uh, you know, policies that were quite damaging to me no longer exist. You know, filing a 51A, then you have to go back to the home where you made the complaint. That doesn't exist anymore, mm -hmm. fortunately. So, uh, but you know, where there are bigger needs now, though, is on increasing the pipeline of those willing to foster uh, and raising our awareness of what an American crisis foster care and aging out of foster care mm -hmm. actually is. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it has no specific race or religion uh, or zip code or family income. Uh, we're, we're seeing children entering the foster care system at levels we have not seen since the Civil War. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not something that we're talking about. Uh, you have so many kind, caring, benevolent souls who are working in the foster care system who aren't, in my humble opinion, given their due. And yet they are overwhelmed uh, with the number of cases that, you know, come to them. It's much greater than it was when I was growing up mm -hmm. in the 1970s and early 80s. Yes. So, Steve, tell us a little bit about your foundation. The idea for the foundation... Uh, came from the public reaction to the book, but I met so many people, and I continue to, many of whom find me on social media. And in essence, they are asking uh, for their chance in the world. Uh, and I certainly recollect those moments where I needed a chance in the world and the small thing that would have made you feel normal. And though the, you know, the foundations in this fledgling, you know, stages, we're, we're, we're still at this point focused on doing the small things that will give a chance. So uh, I donate my uh, my book uh, to entire school systems. Uh, I donate um, and have created scholarships in uh, my hometown of New Bedford, Massachusetts, uh, for middle schoolers to give them their their chance in the world. You know, anything that I can do that can kind of pivot you at some particular point to move you from the circumstance to the possibility is the, the point of foundation. Now we're focused on scaling it. When you're in that situation, what's so important to you is you want to feel normal. 
actually. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to feel that you can act that that you can be a normal teenager. And and so one of the things that we are currently assembling is just creating this marketplace of those who need a chance and those willing to give a chance. Uh, so to provide opportunities for uh, a young girl going to prom to get her makeup done or get a prom dress or uh, a young man who doesn't have the money for uh, the application fee for the standardized test as I want to do. You know, we can give him that chance and give her that, that chance. That's the, the purpose behind uh, the foundation. So we're very excited for its beginning, but we're even more excited for the way in which it's grown. So tell us a little bit about the film. Uh, you said that it's going to be coming out soon? It will be uh, digitally released in the fall. I don't have the name of the distributor quite yet or the date that will happen in the next uh, week or, or so. Uh, but uh, the, the, the book was adapted to a film. We had a one-night showing back in May, and we just met with wonderful response all across the country, particularly at a grassroots uh, level. And very, very optimistic about that, too. Uh, one of the things that we did that night, and we'll do for the digital release as well, uh, that we get through the foundation, is that we reached out to agencies all across America and brought uh, both social workers and the young people they came for to the theater uh, for the evening uh, at no cost. Uh, and I, I, what I was thinking of doing that was but my own thought process at 12, 13, 14 years old, how I would have reacted had I seen a story like mine on the screen uh, and told in a way that affirmed my instinct to fight it and affirmed my instinct that a better day was coming. Uh, and that, you know, that was, continues to be quite magical. So we're really looking forward to the ball and it is real release on the front. When you look back, Steve, well, do you ever stop where you are now and think back and wonder how you got here from where you began? I do. And then every time I do, I'm just reminded that there's a plan for all of us. Uh, and there certainly was for me. I don't have any other answer for it other than that. I'm not exceptional or extraordinary. Uh, you know, I, I, in many ways, just a reflection of people uh, particularly later on, who poured into me, uh, who saw some possibilities uh, in me, and I was—I've uh, always tried to honor, you know, their commitment to me by the way in which I live my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but, but there's always moments that uh, you know they're, they're just not, you know, as as uh, they're not as you know they're not particularly long moments, but I do have times where I'm just in awe, particularly, you know, honestly, especially when I look at my children. Mm. And and I think, what a miracle um, this is that, you know, that they uh, got to live uh, and continue to live a childhood that I, that I did not. That's magical to me. Well, Steve, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Uh, again, Steve's book, A Chance in the World, An Orphan Boy, A Mysterious Past and how he found a place called home. It's a wonderful book. Um, uh, We will have information on on the website as to how you can buy it. And also, Steve, please let us know when the digital version of the movie is 
available. We will also post that on the site so people can can watch. I, I surely will. It's been so wonderful to spend uh, the time uh, with you, Charlene. It's, uh, it is rare that I get an opportunity to talk to Mike, and, and your questions were were just got me to thinking again. As a, as a great question, I always do, of course, with, with anyone. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on. Thank uh, you, Steve. With you. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.